0: Uh, thanks i I certainly don 't know if I deserve that kind of praise, but it 's <laughs> <laughs> like because nobody really knows that <laughs> no but thanks that 's good to hear um, i I do love the Word of God though and i i I always love it um, although it 's always a it 's a bit of a troublesome struggle for me to bring the Word of God you know I, I always compare it to it 's the closest that a guy can get to delivering a baby is actually to do a sermon. <laughs> <laughs> Some people say it's a kidney stone, but I, I, I can really confess it's preparing a sermon. It's like you're just, you just prepared and you struggle and you do things and, and in the end the baby comes out and then uh, you think, well, I certainly hope it's not going to look like that for the rest of his life. <laughs> 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 feel a bit the same bit, uh, you know, with, with, with doing the Word of God sometimes, the, the struggle. And, you know, like as a human, uh, respect. Uh, but, but, but on another note, who knows what's going to be happening tonight? Who knows what's happening tonight? It's going to be rugby. Yes. N- well, no. <laughs> well, it's going to be happening, but it's not a, the main thing. Tonight is going to be a special day for the Jews. And it's a thing called uh, Rosh Hashanah. Uh, does anybody know what Rosh Hashanah means? Rosh means the head, and Shana means the year. So it basically means, in the Hebrew term, it means the head of the year. It's a time for another, another year, Um, and it's a a moment, you know, where the Jews collectively come together and they start, um, you know, basically celebrating the new civil year. It's not the the religious year start, but it's the civil year, and um, it's a strange feast. You know, like uh, in preparation, you know, what we often do is we, you know, I, I ask pastor, or pastor tells me, you know, what, what. You know, what should, what should I preach about? You know, what should we do a sermon about? So pastor said, maybe it's a good idea to do it about Rosh Hashanah because it's a beautiful day. And, you know, you can learn so much from the principles that uh, the ancient Jews have been teaching us. So I started looking into that. And the first two things that I found is that um, one, nobody knows when the feast starts and two, nobody knows what the feast is actually about. <laughs> so I thought to myself, thanks a lot, uh, Pastor, <laughs> for, for giving me this kind of like um, task that I'm unable to do. <laughs> but, uh, yeah know, <laughs> so the, the strange thing is that God only says in his words, let's have a party. Uh, he doesn't say it literally like that. But in Leviticus uh, 23 um, verse 24, he actually says, speak to the children of Israel, saying in the seventh month, on the first day of the month, that's today, you shall have a Sabbath rest, rest, a memorial blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. With other words, you're going to have a party. But why does God do that? Is God just a God that says, listen, guys, it's good to have a party? <laughs> just have a party. You know, there's no reason for a party, is there? And, or must there be more than that? The, the funny thing is we like to rely on the Bible, you know, in, our, in, in finding truth. But um, it, there's nothing in it in the Bible that explains why this is such an important day for the Jews. So what do you do with that? So, I decided to look deeper into it. And I did find that there is a lot in, um, you know, like a biblical, you know, sort of codex that tells about um, the, the, the deeper reasons for the things that are described in the Bible called the Talmud. And the Talmud comes from the, the Hebrew word Lomet, uh, mot." And it means sort of to learn the teachings. And I found out what the, the, the Jewish rabbis teach about this day. And the Jewish, Jewish rabbis, they believe that um, at the beginning of the new year, God takes the place on the throne. And it's not just the throne that he takes place, but it is a throne of judgment. And on that special day when the, the shofar, you know, the ram's horn is blown, and the new moon starts, on that day, God and his throne lets the whole of creation pass. And everybody... You know, all of the living human beings pass before God, and God opens the books. And there's three books that are opened. I mean, it's not in the Bible, but this is what the Jews believe, and it's um, you can take it as a uh, you know, like in that in that respect. But the books are opened, and one book is the book of life, and one is the book of death. And when all creation passes before God you know, the the names are going to be inscribed in one of these books. And uh, the Jewish rabbis, they teach that each year again, you need to come on that day in humility and in a very solemn kind of way to make sure that your name gets inscribed in that book year by year again. And... um, it's funny because if the Jews greet each other on that special day, Rosh Hashanah, they say, um, and I'm going to read it the best I can, Ketifa vechatima Or they say, And my wife is now smiling because obviously <laughs> she can actually speak this language. <laughs> but what it means is um, a good inscription and a good sealing. So what does that mean? The Rosh Hashanah is basically the start, and it's a start of, um, you know, like of, a, of 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 a period of ten days, and it's called the Ten Days of Awe, and that's really written in the Bible. And on the tenth day, you have uh, another holy day called Yom Kippur, and Yom Kippur is the Day of Atonement. It's a day, you know, where your name that is inscribed in the Book of Life gets sealed by God. So that's why they greet each other saying, have a good inscription and have a good sealing. We don't believe in that respect that our name, you know, needs to be sealed every year, do we? We believe that our name is sealed forever already by God. We don't have to come there, but the purpose, you know, of that. Um, you know, that feast is not a feast there uh, where they're going to, you know, where fireworks is going to be set off. It's a very solemn kind of feast. And in these 10 days, you know, you see that the nation is rededicating themselves again to, you know, to God. Go on their knees before God on the 10th day and their name is inscribed. Um, I love that. And I want to talk today very shortly about, uh, you know, the inscription and about that process. And I want to look at uh, uh, a man this morning that's called God's wimpy warrior. <laughs> <laughs> Who could that be? It's probably me. <laughs> God's most wimpy warrior. <laughs> but I'm going to talk about another wimpy warrior as well. Um, But the guy is not really somebody that you would associate with a wimpy warrior. If you look at, uh, you know, the way how he's, you know, how he's presented so often in our sort of like Sunday school kind of stories. (laughs) You know, I'm going to talk about uh, a person that is set in Judges 6, verse 11 to 18. And uh, maybe if you can put it on the screen or look in in the Bible, you know, in your Bible for that. Uh, the, the wimpy warrior is a name called Gideon, a man called Gideon. And despite of his um, common belief, he certainly didn't start out in the fantastic, you know, man of faith, you know, like prayer warrior, standing in front kind of person that everybody reminds uh, um, you know him of right now. So let's read together. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Ebersite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat on a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and he said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor." And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all the wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us? Saying, did not the Lord bring us uh, from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hands of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Did I not send you or do I not send you? And he said to him, please, Lord, How can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. Okay, let's pray together this morning. Jesus, I just want to thank you this morning. Um, You know, for our names sealed in your book, in the book of life. Um, I want to thank about that we can learn so much from this, uh, this person, Gideon. And I thank you that um, you're so willing to choose. We'll see in the next 25, you know, 30 minutes. And uh, that you're willing to fight the battle before us and for us. And I just want to thank you, Father. And I uh, pray, Jesus, that you may speak to hearts this morning to convince them, Father, that it is you who is doing the work you know, in them, and there's nothing, nothing of ourselves that we can do this morning to earn, you know, the mighty work and the mighty salvation that you brought up to our lives. Do and work, Jesus, this morning in the hearts of people, and that's what we pray. Amen. So we're going to talk about Gideon this morning, um, and for me, personally, Gideon was like uh, one of these old 45 records. Do you still know what they are, records? Yeah, as all the old people say, yeah, we know. <laughs> Young people look at me like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, you got these 45 records and they were like twisted so many times, and in, in the end, you get scratches. And if you just listened enough to them, in the end, they become unusable. Like, the message is completely uh, distorted. A- and Gideon, for me, was one of these things. If I ask you this morning, what do you know about Gideon? Who wants to say something? What do you know about Gideon? God's wimpy warrior. <laughs> yeah, it was assigned for stuff, yeah. So, what's the other things that we remember about Gideon? Great Battle of Gideon. I, th- I think it's really good that I chose Gideon as a subject, <laughs> <laughs> seeing how little people know about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, Gideon, in the name of the things, is, is basically uh, the person that, with 300 people, beat an army of 135,000 Midianites. Midianites in that, uh, in that time that, that were, were scary people. You know, it wasn't just like the kind of, you know, people like, like the people of Israel in that moment who were living in dens. You know, they're living in, uh, you know, people like Gideon who were hiding. You know, the Midianites, they were fierce people. Now, how do I know that they were fierce people? Because I'm actually married to a Midianite. <laughs> so like my wife, she's, uh, she's Arabic. And uh, the, the Midianites were Arabic people. They came from the desert, just like my wife. <laughs> and, it is, uh, and, and it is really um, interesting to see that... You know, these people, they were fierce. They were the first ones who pioneered fighting with camels. And these camels, they, could tr- they, could like, they could, would go like 100 kilometers in a day. And the Israelites were so scared of them. So that is the place where we find Gideon. And what is Gideon doing? Where does Gideon get found by the men of God? Hiding behind a wine press. <laughs> because that is where God finds the people that he uses. Hiding behind the wine press. (laughs) (laughs) It's crazy, isn't it? (laughs) Gideon, he was trying to... The little bit of grain that he was having to make, like, you know, like bread and stuff. He was hiding it behind the wine press. And everybody knows that you should never do that in a wine press. Nobody does that. Why is that? Uh, I didn't know that, but uh, I, I, I found out why. Like, uh, I, I'm going to probably gonna be very technical to explain. <laughs> but anyway, it means that the, the, the wheat, if you, whatever, separate it or stuff, that it needs to be blown away by the wind. So when you, when you process wheat, apparently you need to do that on a hill. And what did the guy do? He did it in a wine press hidden away in a den on a hill far away from everybody. And, um, and there comes God. And in this kind of pitiful situation to this wimpy warrior, what does God say? You mighty man of feller. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of people uh, that I studied with commentaries, they think God is making fun of him. He's trying to be sarcastic. <laughs> but I don't think that is true, actually. I don't think God's trying to be sarcastic. I think God is actually seeing something in Gideon that he cannot see for himself at that moment. And I love that because that also might mean that God can see something in me that I don't see at this moment and that he might see something in you. Yeah. Prophesying, you mighty man of feller. But you can see the disconnect between um, the promise that he is given and the words that he's spoken about him and the disconnect how Gideon feels about himself. So what he says, the second thing, what God says is, I, I'm going to be with you. I will be with you. And what I love about Gideon, because he is just like me, what does he start doing when God says, you mighty man of feller? And God is with you, what does he start doing in the text? He starts debating God. <laughs> and, and, and isn't that also your favorite thing to do? To debate God yeah. at the moment that he says anything good about you? So like he says, you're a man of feller. And what this Gideon says, he says, no, I, I'm, the, I'm the least. I'm the least of the Midianites. Or of the Midianites of the <laughs> Israelites. I'm the least. I'm the least here. Uh, least in my family also. And, and we know that that's not true. Because like later in the story, he gathers 10 slaves. And we found out that his father is actually the boss, sort of the big boss there of of, of his tribe, the tribe of Manasseh. But this is how he sees himself. He sees himself as the most little one. And then the second one, you know, the, the angel of the Lord says, God is with you. And what does Gideon say? He says, listen, we had those stories these long, long away stories about when God put us through the desert. And yeah, God was with us at that stage in a sense. But now God has abandoned us. He starts blaming God. And, you know, there's this, this doubt in the heart of Gideon. And this doubt comes down to two questions. And the questions are, who am I? And the second question is, who is God? Because you won't be able to find your calling and to really see God in the way that he is until you properly can answer those two questions. And the only way you can answer those two questions is by the word of God and by his spirit. So to Gideon you know, is hired by God on that day. And I love the fact how God hires, you know, because if I hire, if we hire somebody for a medical center, you know, like another doctor, we don't really hire like God. <laughs> <laughs> so how do we hire? We first check his credentials. You know, we make sure that he doesn't have, an, um, have a proper medical degree and not a certificate in wood carving <laughs> or maybe uh, a diploma of playing the flute. <laughs> <laughs> it needs to be a real doctor. <laughs> and secondly, we don't just want it to be a doctor. We want it to be an eager doctor. He, he needs to be able to want to work with us together. And what do we do? We, make, um, we, we have a compatibility matrix. And we sort of check, mm, how does he relate to us? But God doesn't choose like that. And I love that. God doesn't care about these kind of things in this story. And you know, you might be sitting here this morning, and you might be having a, uh, like a criminal conviction. Like, good on you, because Moses also had a criminal conviction, <laughs> And he was chosen. <laughs> and he didn't only have a criminal conviction, he also had a speech impediment. <laughs> so if Moses would have been in a court of law, he wouldn't have been able to defend himself because of that speech impediment. You know, they would have said, like, uh, what do you plea, Moses? And he would have said, I, I plead, no, no. No. <laughs> And everyone said, Go away, Moses. <laughs> and, and and not only that, you know, Moses didn't only have like a criminal conviction and a speech impediment, he also was he just was so old. He was like so old, he, he must have driven into that courtroom with a, with a walker, you know, one with these little baskets, you know, that you see, <laughs> and in a the basket, the, you know, you get you get these little blankies, you know, how did Moses bring his blanket, <laughs> and he would sit there, you know, and he would be, you know, it <laughs> would be so much the, the anti-hero, and God doesn't care. Moses starts debating him, just like Gideon, and God doesn't even answer. Just like with Gideon. He doesn't even answer Gideon. He doesn't even say, no, Gideon. You know, if I, do, if I choose you, I really have good reason for that, so just trust me, trust me, trust me. He doesn't do that. He just, he just said you have to. <laughs> this is my will. So, if you called this morning to do anything, count on the fact that it is God's divine will that he will complete that work in you. And don't try, and I'm speaking this just as much to myself as to anybody else, please don't even try to negotiate with God about your calling. <laughs> because negotiating with God about your calling, you know, is like sort of, you know, blowing or shouting in the wind. There's nothing that comes out of that. <laughs> Thank you. (laughs) But nevertheless, God doesn't leave it with the calling. It's not that he calls Gideon and he says, okay, sort it out for yourself. Now you're called, whatever, you know, go do my thing. Um, He doesn't leave that because he sees that struggle that Gideon has in his heart. And the struggle pertains to these two questions. Mighty man of feller and God, I will be with you. Because Gideon doesn't believe both of them. So what does he do? You know, there's such a beautiful thing in there. um, That God works through him. I mean, maybe just to go back one second. You know, isn't it amazing that God always seems to be choosing the persons that are weak and humble... And sometimes filled with doubts about themselves in the Bible for his work. And I, I just mentioned Gideon and Moses, but I could mention like, like, like dozens of them. I could mention, you know, Isaiah who, who, you know, who said, uh, I'm a man of unclean lips. I could uh, mention Paul, you know, who basically had a, a profession before he got saved of killing You know, other Christians, killing Christians. can Can you imagine how that is? But I believe, first of all, that God is able to work because of the humility of Gideon. And not so much to help the humility of Gideon. I believe there's an element of humility that Gideon doesn't see at that moment or might see as a bad thing. That actually in God's eyes is a a huge benefit. Like let's think about the story of Samson where Samson wasn't being able to be used by God until his eyes were taken out and he was sort of as a, you know, turning around his days, grinding. And then in the last moment when his eyes were taken out, his hair started growing. Only then in that moment of weakness, he was able to do the work of God. Bring the temple down with Resounding victory, God did the victory through him. And I think God in this story, if you read it further, and I, I do encourage you to read it further because I, it, I mean, I can't go over all of it. What we're seeing basically is, you know, that God, that he, he, he's not, um, how can I say it? He's not frightened by the fact that Gideon time and time again shows his weakness, you know, we always think about conversion. You know, God is there. He speaks a word. The person is changed. And you don't have to worry about anymore about anything. But, but, you know, reality, life is not like that. I think in your life, after you got saved and God told you what his purpose is for you, there was still a lot of human emotions. There was still a lot of fear. There's still, you know, feelings of unworthiness to be used by him and in his calling. And Gideon does the same. So what does he do? He Asks every time God to provide another test. You know, to provide another. He he tests God. Um, And although it's not a good thing, God can work with that. Why can he work with that? Because it, it, how can I say it? Because there is this emptiness. This emptiness in Gideon's heart this empty room, this storage space that God can move into. I mean, I, I, I love the Westminster Confession um, where it says, what is the chief end of man? Who knows that? Who knows what's the chief end of man? Richard knows it. Um, amen. That is it. <laughs> Sunday school. <laughs> so, like, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. How can God be glorified? He can be glorified only if there's space enough in our hearts. There needs to be an empty space where God can glorify it. But, but if we look at our lives, we're so focused often on our identity in ourselves. And we live in a society where um, so much is about who you are, who you are in yourself. And, and, and for instance, if you look at my son, he already changed the color of his hair the last Three times in the last year, <laughs> and I mean, so much is about it. It's, it's now it's nice and blue today, it's in this blue period, <laughs> but uh, now he's smiling because he doesn't mind. But it shows that in our lives, we're so much focused on ourselves and our identity. But God doesn't look so much at that identity, He looks into purpose. If you are happy in your weakness, then God can use that space that is left to fulfill his purpose. And I truly believe that. I truly believe that. And I will go later to Rosh Hashanah. Uh, I'm not going to make it too long, but that's what I, I mean. I really feel that this is what God wants me to say. You know, the thing that you lack makes you special in God's eyes. Galatians 2 verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And he will do the purpose. You know, again, the mighty man of Feller was what God prophetically showed to Gideon that he would become. And I truly believe that in this story, and I advise you to read it for yourself, that you see the emptying of Gideon. Instead of puffing Gideon up, God breaks him more and more. How does He break him? He breaks him by, you know, making it more and more difficult for him. You know, when Gideon felt that he was called, finally, he got all the men of Israel to fight together, and he had a force of about forty thousand people. But God says, "I can't win a war with forty thousand people. I need to have less." I need to have less people so that I can be glorified more. And Gideon's nature was quenched by God. First to 10,000 and then to 300. Do you remember, can you imagine for Gideon how that felt? The little confidence that he had that he would fight with 40,000 was taken away by God. Instead of making more confident, God made him less confident so that there was more space for God. God. To be glorified. And God would be glorified to those 300. But God couldn't be glorified unless he also showed Gideon the second thing. Because he doesn't want to leave you weak. He wants to fill that space. How did he fill that space? By showing Gideon the second thing that he said to him. That is, the Lord is with you. He doesn't just make you weak this morning. Just to leave you weak. He fills that weakness with a revelation that he will be there all the time for you. And I I love that. You know, like what does the Westminster Confession say about God? It says God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. With other words, God is everything that we are not. (laughs) It's so uh, eye-opening to see that. But that's a good thing because that means his identity is not dependent on our identity. His love that he wants to give to you this morning is not dependent on our actions. And we need to understand that. You know, we need to understand that God is different than us. Um, How is he different than us? You know that human relationships, the relationship that you have with your kids or with your partner... Or maybe, you know, like with each other. It's a relationship that is determined by fragility. Why is that? If I say something bad, if I hurt my wife, I cannot rely on the fact that she will stay with me. Our relationships are different in that sense. But the beauty about God's relationship is that is related to God's identity, which means God is always going to be the same. God is the constant factor that provides. And for me, this was an eye-opener. How did God work that out? How did he give Gideon the certainty that, um, that he didn't have to worry about things in this story? How did he do that? Um, you know, like, there's four tests in the story of Gideon. Four times God gives a word to Gideon of encouragement. The first time when he does that is when, you know, what we read here in the text, that the offer is con- consumed by God. The second time is the, the time that the fleece is, is wet. The, second to- the third time is the time when the fleece is dry. And God gives all these things on Gideon's requests. Gideon says to God, God, give me a sign. He tests God. And we know that it's not right to test God. But God complies. But all these three times that Gideon asked for it, nothing happens in the life of Gideon. But it is the fourth sign that God will show him. And that is the sign that that Gideon didn't ask for. But it's the sign that God in his sovereignty wanted to give to Gideon that changes everything. And the fourth sign, when Gideon is there, fear and trembling with his 300 men, he's doubting himself the most. He's wondering if God is with him still. That God says, listen, Gideon, I'm going to lead you in the middle of the camp. 135,000 crazy Arabs, you know, surrounded (laughs) by him. All these camels, (laughs) you know, how fierce they can be. (laughs) And Gideon is there in the middle of the camp. And you know what God does there in the middle of the camp? He's hiding there behind the, whatever, probably behind the camel. (laughs) And God... Let him hear a conversation by two of these fierce Midianites, or so it seems. Because in the eyes of Gideon, those Midianites are scary. (laughs) And you know what the Midianite says one to the other? He says, listen, uh, brother, I had had a dream last night. And God, the God of Gideon, the mighty warrior Gideon, that's what he literally says. uh, He's going to take a bread and it's going to be, his army is going to be like a bread into our camp. And that camp is going to be destroyed. We are going to be doomed. And it is finally the the thing that God gives. It is God in his sovereignty. Nothing that Gideon asked for, but it is what God wanted to give to him in accordance with his purpose. That finally convinces Gideon in his heart. And he goes back to the camp and he says, listen, the Lord is with us. On this day, God will give us the Midianite army into our hands. It shows a lot. We often try to challenge God in our weakness. But sometimes we forget that God will give it to us anyway on his own conditions, on his own terms. And I love that. Because when God says he's with us, he is really going to be with us. (laughs) And I, I, I really love this story. And it shows so much, you know. And, and this is how, um, you know, I, I saw Pastor's face when he read uh, Hebrews 11, verse 1 and 2. He thought, <laughs> where is Hank going to go with this uh, sermon? Mm-hmm. Uh, the reason that I actually wanted it to be read is because Hebrews, the, the, the writer of Hebrews, looks back on Gideon. And he basically talks about faith. And this wimpy warrior is mentioned as one of the many examples in Hebrews 11 as a man of faith. So the man behind the wine press turned through God's work into a warrior, confirmed by God, endured by God, in the sovereignty of God, given that, that endless confirmations. I was turned into a man of faith. And I, I love what it says here about Hebrews 11, verse 32, because Hebrews basically talks about um, you know, a long list of people that are mentioned as people of faith, like Abraham, stuff like this. But Gideon is also part of it, and it says here in Hebrews 11, verse 32, and what more shall I say? I do not have time to talk about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets. But he does anyway. Because in 33, it says here, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, who shut the mouth of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped to the edge of the sword. And then he talks about Gideon. And he says, whose weakness was turned into strength. And I just find it so humbling that a man who is so much like me, you know, so much struggles I had, uh, and people who really know me, they know that I'm a doubter, <laughs> yeah, I often doubt about things, it's so humbling to know that, um, and you know, that that, that that doesn't matter for God, in the sense that I, I doubt about myself a lot, But I can honestly say that I am also know that God is able to do something in my life. I really know him by the Holy Spirit. He's shown that to me. And that those doubts, you know, are so easily countered if God reshapes you. So um, I just feel, you know, that the Jews with the Rosh Hashanah, you know, celebration that they can have tonight, they, they touched on something very profound. So, you know, like you have to imagine, where did the real battle take place? On the battlefield when the 300 beat the 135,000? Where did God fight the battle? He fought the battle in the quietness of working on his relationship with Gideon. And I believe that those, you know, that period between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, between the moment of inscribing in the book and the, you know, so to say, the sealing. uh, Although we believe as Christians that we don't have to do that work anymore, there is this element of what they call the 10 days of awe. And it is the 10 days between Rosh Hashanah, um, Rosh Hashanah and between Yom Kippur. And it, in those days of all, people draw back. Draw back to their own room. And they humble themselves. They see God. And if I read for those, you know, how do they do that? How do they, what's their mode of, of working? They basically do three things. They redefine the relationship with God. they rededicating the things to God which they lost. And they come with repentance to God. And I believe that, um, you know, that's where the warfare takes place. And there's this element of soul searching. I, I think for me what I learned from this story is, um, is basically how many times in your life... In the busyness of life, do you really have that you, that, you, that you go back in your back room for the 10 days, the 10 days of awe, and that you sort out with God all the things that He wants to do in your life? Just how Gideon was in the quietness, in the end, in the quietness of the night brought by God into the Midian camp, how in the quietness behind the wine press, he found God's purpose. How often do we actually go back into that 10 days of awe? How often are we able to really take some time to really redefine that relationship between us and God? You know, like for me, myself, I just so often distracted. So I believe that um, wherever there's a word of God, there's also a challenge of God. And you're probably going to feel where I'm going now. <laughs> mm. so, but I believe that God has from time to time in the lives of people um, a challenge. And, let's, and it's, you know, it's, it's better than the challenges in the world. And you can call it a Rosh Hashanah challenge. And it's a challenge where for 10 days, just like the Jews, for instance, you would sort of like draw your back into your back room. And you would humble yourself in front of God and you would seek what God wants to do with you and how he's going to do that, redefining that relationship. When is the last time you really had a Rosh Hashanah challenge in your life? Where you set yourself apart in holiness like um, Jews all over the world are going to do tonight at the sign of the first moon and the blowing of the shofar. I had to I had to look back quite a bit. I give God little bits. But really a period of intense soul searching. Letting God speak to my life. You know, that's a beauty. I think that's a beauty. I, I just want to... Um, I want to just bring this to your heart. And I want you to see God if this is something that He might want you to do. When God comes into your life. He will reveal a purpose that he's willing to do, and he will reveal also the strength that you need to accomplish that purpose. But he will only do it in the quietness of, you know, seeking him. So, um, I just feel I'm going to end in a prayer. A prayer that might lead us, you know, to a moment of humbling, or to a period specified of humbling ourselves. And rededicate ourselves as a person, but also as a body, again, to seek the will of God into our lives. For our church, for ourselves, for our families, for our purpose, for God's will. And it is a period of emptying ourselves. You know, like Jesus said in Philippians 2 verse 7, but he emptied himself. Humbling is what Philippians says here period of humbling in front of the throne of God let us pray this morning bow our heads thank you Jesus for uh, you know that you're always so willing to you know to work in the emptiness and father that where we lack you are able to step in mightily and when you step in that we can count on the fact that you will step in in your own terms but decisively, decisively changing, changing us here this morning, changing me this morning, you know, being able to, you know, do what we cannot do out of ourselves. And I I just want to thank you, Father, for all the things you've, you know, you've called many here in this church this morning. That you've called them behind the wine press. And that those dreams are still active. And that, that you encourage people. And call them to seek you in the darkness of the ten days of awe. To seal the promises that you made for us, Father. And I want to thank you this morning. And, uh, you know, in in Jesus' name we say, Amen. Thanks for listening to me. (laughs)